Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were all born in the 1940s and we are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and the age of Trump. In this episode, our guest is Lynn French, a member of the Black Panther Party from 1968 to 1973, working in Chicago, Berkeley, and Oakland. She was in Chicago when Fred Hampton was murdered and was an advisor for the new movie, Judas and the Messiah. On the Zoom session with me are classmates Fred Easter, John Woodford, Jerry Secundi, and Connie McDougall. Plus, we are joined by classmates Bill Collins, Marcy Benstock, Cindy Wardle, Nick Bancroft, David Othmer, Mason Morfitt, Doug Shapiro, Alden Briscoe, and Liza Woodford. Here's Lynn French. When I was in high school, I, I admired SNCC people, and there was a group in Washington called NAG, Nonviolent Ac- Action Group. And um, my fr- so I decided I was going to go, just go join the civil rights movement, not go to college. I was a bit rebellious, John wow. can tell you, <laughs> as a child. And that was not acceptable to my parents. So I was shipped off when they discovered I hadn't submitted any of the college applications they thought I was going to make. I was shipped off to Western College for Women in Oxford, Ohio. And um, at the end of the year, I wrote home and said, well, there's going to be this Mississippi Freedom Summer this summer, and people are coming here to train for it. So I'm just not coming home. And at the time, I had not long been 17. I was still experimenting with free determination. (laughs) And after my last uh, exam, I returned to my dorm room and there were my mother and my grandmother frantically packing all my things up. They had rented the trailer. They were throwing <laughs> things in the trailer. And I could see my mother saying, somebody's child's going to be killed this summer and it won't be my child. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> but also um, for me, that marks the last time that I really claimed enough agency to do what I wanted to do. And I just said, okay, mama. And I went home. Uh, I didn't go back to Western College the following year. Um, I just sort of sat out and worked. And then I needed to go back to school. So I went out to Chicago to go to school and ended up um, at Roosevelt University. And I arrived in Chicago in 66, right when the Black Power Movement was taking off. And um, Pretty much everybody I knew was intrigued with Black Power and just sort of feeling our way of what are we going to do with it. We started a Black Students Union at school, and that's at a point where they weren't, they weren't, they were not a common occurrence in colleges. 19, well, by this time I'm talking about is 1968. Oh, okay. And, um, um, so we had we had started this black student union. So we decided, you know, we were going to have workshops and we needed a major speaker. So we were scouting around for who can who can we get to be a speaker? And one of our classmates named Bill Hampton said, oh, I have a brother named Fred who's a really good speaker. Mm-hmm. So sight unseen, we invited 
Fred to be our speaker. And at that point, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party had not formally been organized. They, Bobby Rush, who's now congressman, organized the chapter and Fred was his first recruit uh, because he was such a dynamic speaker and they were really just going around recruiting people. So I met them that day and for me, that's all she wrote. Um, at that point in my life, I was pretty much obsessed with self-determination. Um, I didn't feel when I graduated from high school in 63 that there were many great expectations articulated for me as an American woman. There were expectations, but they pretty much were around finding a good husband, becoming a school teacher, what have you. And I just wanted to see more of the world. And the first point of the Black Panther Party's 10-point program is we want freedom. We want the power to determine our own destiny. And that's what spoke to me. So that's how I joined the Black Panther Party. <laughs> so home for me at that point was really Washington, D.C. I had been, I had my own apartment in Chicago because I was there in school um, where we, we all lived in various apartments that people shared. Um, and we called them Panther cribs, but they pretty much were just like being, you know, roommates in an apartment. I dropped out of school because okay. of that. I didn't go back to college until 74. I, and 70, by 74, I had left the party and moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I went to Wellesley and got my degree there. So most of my college was at Wellesley. So contrary to a lot of what was hyped in the papers, we weren't just going around looking to have gun battles with people, but we did believe in defending ourselves if we were attacked, which is, I guess, why Fred was drugged before they murdered him. The big attraction for me were, was all our programs, and we called them survival programs, because, of course, in, I, in our idealistic minds, there was going to be a revolution. We were going to change America. And I think we did change America in a lot of ways. It just didn't end up looking the way that we thought it was going to look back in 68. And so the point of the survival programs was to support the community until we could get to a better place. Um, the free breakfast for school children was our first big program. And at that point, um, there were just many, many children going to school hungry. So we just felt they couldn't learn hungry. And we decided to start a breakfast program. And the first one we were going to open on the west side of Chicago, at the Better Boys Foundation. And we we got donations for food and we had it stored there. And we announced what the opening day was. And the night before the Chicago police broke in and smashed up all the food and even urinated on it. And um, so we had a press conference and just showed what they had done. And as a result, we had donations coming in from all over. We were able to immediately open breakfast sites across the city in all parts. You know, Chicago's a pretty big city. Um, so on the south side and the west side and some even on the north side. In terms of what I was saying about a revolution, we claim credit for the fact that the government serves free breakfast in public schools every day. Um, you know, I think that that's, we kind of push that idea. The same with clinics. We had a free health clinic 
And then another thing we had was we felt one of our one of the points in our program was that we felt that, and I think people still feel this, that there are there were a lot of people, especially black men who were in prison who had been denied fair trials. And so we wanted people to be tried by a jury of their peers. But in addition, we wanted a review of who was being held in prison. And we, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the, with the uh, Oscars, but every year there's an award called the Irving Thalberg Award that's given to somebody who has had a long-standing career in films and they honor that person. Well, Irving Thalberg Jr. lived in Chicago and he bought us a Greyhound bus and we superimposed a panther over the Greyhound and we started a program taking people to visit their, you know, so that prisoners could meet with, see their families and go back and forth. Um, We had, um, you know, literacy programs. We had, at one point we were experimenting with exterminating for roaches. I don't know if we perfected that, but we called ourselves attacking the roach problem in the community. Fred was a very dynamic person. Um, He was an amazing speaker. And um, something that I really just came to know recently since this movie was made, that Fred had a speech impediment. What I knew about Fred was that he studied tapes of different speakers like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or what have you. And he would listen to them and preachers and he really developed his skill. And I understand now that he developed that that practice initially to overcome his speech impediment. But you never would have had any guess at that if you heard him speak. They imprisoned Fred because they claimed that he held down a good humor man on a playground and told all the children to come get free ice cream and that $71 worth of ice cream was taken. Um, He disputed that nobody, we don't know what really happened, but they, the lawyers, there was a group of young lawyers just out of uh, law school in Chicago who represented us. They called themselves the People's Law Office. And they really thought they had negotiated a plea bargain for that. So nobody went, only like two people went to, to court with him on that. And the one of the people came back and said, you're not gonna believe this, but they took Fred straight to prison. They had taken him right to Statesville and he was organizing a Statesville prison. So they shipped him to Menard, which is a heavier duty security for people who are like criminally insane or habitual criminals. So he got out on appeal bond. The only reason I wasn't there when it happened was because Fred had had been informed a few weeks earlier that he his appeal was denied. He was out on appeal bond and he was given a certain number of days to get his affairs straight and turn himself in. And you kind of see a piece of that in the movie when you see like the gang leader brings him all this cash and all that, because there were people who were saying to him, here, just leave the country um, or do this or do that. There were a lot of suggestions made and he didn't, wasn't of a mind to do all those, but was kind of at sea because he knew that once they locked him back up, you know, with indeterminate sentencing, who knows when he would get out or if he would get out. And so we were over 
the Illinois chapter was over all the chapters in the Midwest. And he called all the chapters into Chicago to have a couple weeks of political education before he left. Ooh. And with all those people in town, uh, that's why Mark Clark happened to be there that night. He wasn't from Chicago. With all those people in town, those of us who were more senior members, what have you, had to go stay at different apartments with them to find their way around. I mean, there was no cell phone with the with an app that could tell you how to get somewhere or anything. So I was staying out in South Shore at an apartment. And the other thing that Fred was doing was he didn't, he had gotten to the point where he really was kind of suspecting O'Neill. I don't know that he knew the extent of what O'Neill was doing, but he was suspicious of O'Neill and just leery of who was around him. So he wasn't staying at his apartment at night anymore. And he wouldn't tell people where he was staying. And I suspect he didn't even necessarily stay the same place every night. But so if people had to reach him after hours, a phone chain was put in place. And I was the first link on the phone chain. So they had to call me. And then I had a number to call. I don't, I have no idea who that was who answered the phone um, other than it was a female voice. And I have no idea if that was someone standing next to him or if there were 10 more people went through. All I know is that when I called that number, he called back immediately. And so that night that Jake Winters got into the shootout with the police, you saw that in the movie, they kind of misrepresent what happened, but that night it was a big deal. And I had to, we were trying to get in touch with him to tell him what had happened. Jake did that. On, that was his own adventure, <laughs> but it, it sort of sealed the death warrant for Fred. I think they already wanted Fred out of the way, but the Chicago Tribune printed something that said anybody suspected of being a Panther should just be shot on sight. They were just so angry that two police officers had been killed and more <laughs> wounded. And so they came to the place where I was staying in South Shore on December 2nd. Yeah, I say that not because I think that they thought, oh, we got to lock up Lynn French. He's dangerous. I think that because they knew people were calling me to get to Fred, that 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 was the next step of what they were doing to try to figure out where Fred was. So they came in the wee hours of the morning on December 2nd, similar to what they did with Fred. And they knocked on the door and said that they had a telegram for me. <laughs> And you all are old. When I tell this to young people, they don't even know what I'm talking about. People sending a telegram. <laughs> do that, so do that. I said, oh, put it yeah. under the door. You know, because at that time of the morning, you aren't even awake enough to think through what's going on here. So I just sort of said, stick it under the door. And they said, no, we need your signature. And I stood up and then I thought, who brings a telegram out without calling you first? You know, this is obviously phony. So, <laughs> A, a guy who was in the apartment and named Tony and I, there were two guns in the apartment and we didn't want to turn guns over, you know, to police, you know, just like here. So we went out the back door, still not really clearly thinking. We went out the back door of the apartment, it was a basement apartment. And in Chicago, 
not only do the apartment buildings have a stairwell in the front, but they have an interior stairwell in the rear, and then another step that you go through to get outside. So when we opened the back door to the apartment, we could see that the building was completely surrounded by the police. So we went running up the back stairs and they started shooting at us. And Whoa. Um, I guess we decided we weren't suicidal. So we gave up and we were arrested and three of us were arrested. And so there's like a three-step process when you get arrested like that. First, they take you to the area precinct and precincts in Chicago are pretty large. They're not like the dinky ones we have here in Washington. And it, you know, it really looks like a real jail. And then ultimately they take you to the central lockup that's over next to the jailhouse and the courthouse and you spend the night there. And that, night, that day you have a bond hearing and then the next day they transfer you to the jail. So it was December 2nd that we were locked up. That evening we had our bond hearing and of course they set the bond at a gazillion dollars. And my lawyer said, don't worry, it'll get lowered tomorrow when we have a real hearing. So the next day we had a hearing at the court and then we were taken over to the Cook County Jail and the lower bond was still beyond my means. And if I hadn't had a wonderful cousin named John Woodford, I would still be sitting in, in, the, in the jail. But my dear, the first day I was locked up, I still have a well-worn copy of Blues People that John brought me to the jail to read. That was a new book then. So, so, um, so then the first morning that I actually woke up in the Cook County Jail, you know, you on each jail block, you, you eat your meals right there in the common area and they have a TV that they keep on all the time because they would much rather for you to just look at mindless soap operas than think about anything or read anything. So we went out to eat breakfast and I noticed the TV wasn't on. And usually when we're around the TV, I would always have to bargain with people like, can we just watch some news, you know? But this morning there was no TV in sight. And before we even finished eating, the, the matron came and said to me, your lawyer's here to see you. And it was one of the lawyers from the People's Law Office, Mark Kadish, uh, whom I could tell at sight had been, if not crying, very upset. And he told us that Fred had been murdered. But the most horrific of it was the fact that they came in and, you know, that Fred was drugged and killed in his sleep. I mean, he that was an execution from that was ordered by the highest level of the United States government. That wasn't even like, like yesterday morning, I don't know if any of you all watch uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC, but they had Shaka King, who was the director of the movie and Deborah Johnson, who was in bed with Fred when he was, they were on Morning Joe. And Morning Joe kept trying to focus the conversation on, yeah, well, the Chicago police still do that. And Deborah and, and Shaka, Deborah especially was saying, this wasn't the Chicago police. This came directly from J. Edgar Hoover, who undoubtedly discussed it with the president of the United States. It was very obvious the uh, I went to the house, the apartment, maybe at about eight or nine that morning. Uh, it was very cold with um, 
I think his name is Bill Christmas, a photographer. We didn't get in right then, but later on you could go in. But yeah, they were too stupid to seal off the apartment. <laughs> but uh, we went there, we sh and we took uh, photographs all over. But everybody who went, because the other reporters and photographers were there from Chicago papers. Uh, that time I was at Muhammad Speaks, and you could see all the bullet holes going in. I mean, it was just so obvious that you yeah. didn't need to be an expert to see that they had. Uh, it was a shoot in. Use a lot of shells. I mean, just holes everywhere, 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 and uh, yeah. on the mattresses, that sort of thing. And of course, Deborah was pregnant. Deborah was eight and a half months pregnant. Uh, they had dragged her out of the. Somebody yelled, "There's a pregnant woman in there!" And they dragged her out. And then, and then uh, somebody said, "Is he dead?" And they said, "He'll barely make it." So a, a police, one of the people, stood over him and. What do they call that? A coup de grace? Just blew his brains out. We hired our own ballistics experts and we got our own autopsy. So the ballistics experts had these straws lined up. You can see the trajectory of all the bullet holes because of these straws. And you could see that that they all there's only there was only one bullet hole in the ceiling in the hallway that it wasn't conclusive, but they said it possibly could have been shot by him. And then the autopsy, um, you, you know, my dad, my dad read the autopsy report. He said that there was so much secanol in him that Fred just didn't know what was going on. How he did was, they get the, the secanol in him? The, the guy in the movie, the traitor no, in the movie. In Fred Hampton. Yeah, what I'm saying is, I'm trying to get you to recall, maybe you haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen it, no. In the movie, they show this, 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 this guy who has infiltrated named William O'Neill. We all believe that he laced Fred's Kool-Aid with that. Fred didn't drink, he didn't smoke marijuana. I mean, he was pretty atypical for that period of young people. <laughs> and he had no vices. And so um, people had gathered that, e that evening, they had had a rally at this church we use for all our rallies. We called the People's Church. And they were raising bail money that was supposed to have gone to get us out of jail. And they went, a few of them went back to the apartment just to talk before Fred went off and all that. And during that period, while they were there, O'Neill made some Kool-Aid and, and what we believe is that he laced the Kool-Aid with the uh, with the drug with the Secanol. No, we just think he put it in Fred's glass. Oh, I see. He um and and as a result of that, as they as time went by, Fred became too sleepy to leave there and go somewhere else, and said, oh, "I'm so I'm just going to stay." He, you know, he, Deborah says that they called his mother because I guess they were supposed to have gone to his mother's house that evening. And they got her on the phone to tell her they weren't going to make it. And she said, Fred fell asleep while the mother was on the phone. Wow. And so, you know, that's how that's how how they engineered having him at the appropriate spot for them to come in shooting. Well, Lynn, did you know O'Neill at all? Well, yeah, we all knew O'Neill. How well did you know him? But we all knew each other. Um, he wasn't someone I admired. Um, so I didn't spend a lot of time with him personally, but I certainly knew him and I never, I just never liked him. Um, he just wasn't, and it was clear to me, um, 
most of us in the party were motivated by our goals and talking about ideas and stuff. And he just was never part of any of those discussions. And he was in, we had cadres and he was in the security cadre. So all he really did was bodyguard type stuff or, and he was very good with renovations. So, you know, our office kept getting attacked. He knew how to fix it back up and do all that kind of stuff. But there was nothing attractive about him to me. I mean, that's not to say that there weren't people who talked to him, but just me personally, um, he did not intrigue me whatsoever. <laughs> I think the movie shows, and it's true of some of the others too, that when they got to talking about, as we call it, adventurism or mm-hmm. you know, criminal or violent activity, that's when those guys would often yeah, that's... get energized. They were always trying to egg on people give an excuse to the cops. What was the the, the name Panther? Where did that come from and and, and what did that symbolize? How did that how did that get created? Okay well the there's kind of a two-point answer to that. Uh, At the end of at the end of the influence of SNCC they they kind of dug in in Alabama and you see it a bit in like in that Selma did you see the movie Selma around the march from Selma to Montgomery the SNCC people towards the end stayed in the field in Alabama because they're in in that black so-called black belt states the number of black adults outnumbered white adults in many counties and they formed (laughs) the Black Panther Party to be another party on the ticket. And they what they were really doing was registering people to vote. It was an uphill battle and they would run candidates. And I don't know that any of their candidates won that early on, but the whole point of it was to, um, was to register people to vote. And, um, you know, in its natural progression that went on to, a, you know, the voter education project that really changed all the voter dynamics in the South. The reason they chose the symbol Black Panther is that a panther is a ferocious animal, but it doesn't attack people unless they're attacked. It's not like a lion that just sees you and says, oh, that looks like a good meal over there. So the whole point of the symbolism of the panther is, you know, we're going to defend ourselves, but we're not attacking. And then when, as the party developed, uh, Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown in the early days of the party were part of the Black Panther Party. So they, they kind of borrowed that name from them. Lowndes County, Alabama, mm-hmm. W-N-D-E-S. And they believed in defending themselves mm-hmm. because they had Black war veterans and others down. Yeah. Beacons for defense. Yeah. And uh, that's part of the origin of the symbol. Mm-hmm. So Lynn, it, it sounds as though <clears throat> the Panthers had a bunch of programs that were sort of motherhood and uh, apple pie, the food programs and the housing programs and what have you, that might have survived the government attacks on the leadership. So how would you explain the sort of long-term dissolution, if you will, of the party? Well, the party was destroyed plain and simple from, you know, by the agents and all that happened and getting people to the point where nobody could trust anybody. But I think that those principles did survive. I think now poor children get not only free breakfast, they get free lunch. Mm 
Yep. And in some places like here, they send another bag home with them for dinner or for the weekend that's paid for by the federal government. We have, you have um, clinics, free clinics, and at least in major cities, um, um, there, I just think that the principles, those are the two leading principles, but the principles we talked about became, were adapted by society. The other thing that was unique, another thing that was unique about the party was um, we rejected um, men and women were equals, even though there've been some people who try to say otherwise. So women had equal status to men and that was early on before now, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, women would just tell you, get out of here if you tried, you know. Right. Um, so I think that in spirit, the things that we did, and then, and then we all think that Black Lives Matter is an echo to, to what we, to us, they, they organized around the same issues of police brutality that came directly from police brutality. Right. And um, I know that a lot of the young people read and learn about us. And that's not to say that they just copy us. We've never encouraged them to call themselves Black Panthers, but to read and learn what happened to us. And that's the point of this movie, being a message to them about being careful about those in whom you confide even because right. you never know how, how um, you're going to be infiltrated and people are going to come after you. Yeah. The sad story is that racism is still alive and well in this oh. country and the police are still pretty brutal to especially black young men when they stop them on the street. It's just amazing. Lynn, Lynn did you think, were the Panthers particularly vulnerable to infiltration or yeah about it heck yeah and you know pretty much to join all you had to do was come say i want to be a panther and uh -huh. sit through some uh, political education classes so that's one thing when people look back on like was there would there have been a better way to you know uh, screen people yeah but but once 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 we gained some notoriety, young black folks were drawn to the party. Um, just every, across, you know, people would just come swarming in. Now, when Fred was murdered, a lot of people left our chapter because they were scared, but then it revived, you know, almost immediately. But some of the people who were there when it happened left and they'd say this reason or that, but I'm pretty certain that what it was was they were terrified that to discover that they come in in the middle of the night and kill you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the chapter lasted for several years after that, you know, more people came in. Lynn, I, I'm just curious, what were the circumstances of your leaving the party? Okay, that's a very good question. You know, I always tell my daughter that at the point at which I joined, I feel that it was the best, it was the best choice for me to make then. And the time which I left was the best choice for me to make then. <laughs> and I don't regret what's in between. Um, I left in 73. My daughter was almost two years old. Um, conditions were changing in the party because of all that was going on with infiltrators. Um, I had spent some time at that point out on the West Coast in the Bay Area because Huey had gotten out of jail. And I just saw a whole different 
aspect of the party, you know, I really think that I don't know. How, I didn't know Huey before he was locked up, but when he got out, he, he you know, yeah, it was disillusioning, and um, uh, so that that and then it, it, I just was, and I had a daughter. You know, my daughter was almost two. And, and I was just thinking from day to day, is this, you know, what am I going to do here? Who, what's more important? And my mother, who was, God love her, very perceptive, wrote me a letter and said, my father at that point was negotiating to go overseas. My father ultimately moved the family to West Africa. But at this point, he was going to all these newly um emancipated West African countries that wanted to hire him to create public health programs. And she said, daddy's getting ready to go on this tour and I want to go with him so we can make a decision. And I need for you to come home. Now she didn't really need for me to come home, but she said, I, I would just feel better if you were home because I have seven brothers and sisters. She was very clever about it. And she knew that once I got home, I'd stay, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> and went back to school and you know I've always carried Fred with me but I went on with my life Indeed the memory of the murder of Fred Hampton will be with us all And that's it for episode 19 of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast I'm Kent Garrett and you can read all about us in the book The Last Negroes at Harvard Music